where our passage is found for this morning's sermon. Page 1603, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. Jesus has just answered the disciples of John the Baptist, and he has brought our attention to the gospel of the kingdom and the grace that comes before judgment in the ministry of Jesus, because Jesus bore the judgment for sin himself. Thus, we come to verse 24 of Luke chapter 7. This is God's word given to us, his people, for our benefit. Let us give our attention to its reading. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right, because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Imagine that there is a man who has the goal of using his retirement years to build the house of his dreams. He has more time and resources and curiosity to take on such a huge project. And so he devotes a number of years to learning building and then to devoting all of his time to actually executing the project. And what he pulls off is stunning, a great blessing for him and his wife and his kids and grandkids. A great place to enjoy the twilight years of life. But then just before move-in day, disaster strikes. And his life ends before he gets the chance to enjoy the fruits of his labor. In a way, that sad story is parallel to what we see with John the Baptist in this passage today. What Jesus says about John the Baptist needs to be understood in an historical sense. John does not experience the full flowering of the glories of the new covenant, of the coming of the kingdom of God in power in its post-resurrection force. Rather, he is a prophet of God who, 
who bridges the gap to the Messiah, and he stands as the last in the line of Old Testament prophets. Although John's story is a bit sad, it's not as worrisome as what Jesus says about the Pharisees and the experts in the law, the people that Jesus calls this generation. In a sense, you might say that the Pharisees, the experts of the law, could be likened to a family that goes and hires a professional to design a house. But with all of their requests, uh, the designer tries to honor all of their wishes and, and draw up things that would be exactly as they would like, but the family keeps coming back saying, no, this isn't what we like. No, we don't like this. No, we don't like that. Why don't you try this? Then the designer tries it, and inevitably it comes back again, and they say, we don't like that either. After a while, the designer is going to resign himself to the notion that this is a family that just doesn't want a new house. No matter how he puts it to them, they refuse. And the point is this, the Pharisees and the experts in the law, no matter how the kingdom of God is presented to them, they reject it. And their fundamental problem is how they view their righteousness before God. And the system of righteousness which they had constructed, it causes them to reject every way which the kingdom of God is presented to them. Thus, the central idea from today's passage is this. Our appetite for the gospel will be determined by our taste for two things, repentance and grace. Repentance and grace. Our appetite for the gospel is determined by two things, our taste for repentance and grace. The Pharisees, the experts in the law, because of their system of righteousness, had no taste for these two things, repentance and grace. Jesus wants to answer exactly what he thinks about John the Baptist. He has just sent the disciples of John away, and he has given John an answer to all of his concerns. John had concerns about the ministry of Jesus, didn't he? And he was concerned primarily because of two things, unmet expectations and unwanted circumstances. There were unmet expectations because John the Baptist thought that the Messiah was going to come immediately with a winnowing fork in his hand and come to execute judgment, to bring wrath that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. So John's ministry was one of saying, the time is short, the kingdom of God is at hand, the Messiah has come to judge. But Jesus does not do that. This troubled John the Baptist. Jesus came healing, proclaiming forgiveness. So there are these unmet expectations that John the Baptist has. Not only that, but he's in the midst of unwanted circumstances. He's in prison. Those uh, leaders that have stood opposed to God and his purposes are still in power. And he's wondering, when will Jesus come and vindicate his name and the name of the God of Scripture. So John the Baptist, his situation creates parallels to our lives, right? We all have unmet expectations, ultimately, when we consider the things of God, the plan for our life. We all have unwanted circumstances that come our way time and time again. And our default is to point the finger at God, right? Even if we don't necessarily notice or realize that we're doing it, To call into question the things that belong to God's providence is, in a sense, to point our finger at him. And thus, all of us, like John the Baptist, need to take a good long look 
at our own souls and contemplate this question, do we see the transcendent value of the kingdom of God? That's what the gospel of Luke is calling us to time and time and time again. The transcendent value of the kingdom of God. That truly, to have your sins forgiven, to have the salvation of the kingdom, to look upon Jesus and see his beauty, there is transcendent value in all of those things. We assume that John the Baptist came around to see just what Jesus was saying as he contemplated his unmet expectations, his unwanted circumstances. But today, we see that the Pharisees and the experts in the law do not get over the offense of the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by the way that I bring mercy before judgment. They do not get over the offense of the gospel of the kingdom because their system of righteousness compels them to reject both John the Baptist and Jesus. Jesus answers as his disciples, the disciples of John, leave. And it seems as though Jesus wants to make clear that he and John are preaching the same kingdom. That even though there are different ways, different characterizations of their ministry, they're preaching the same kingdom. So Jesus wants to assure the crowds that John was indeed a prophet of God. So he says in verse 24, What did you go out to the desert to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Jesus is saying, is John the Baptist something flimsy with no backbone? Something without conviction that can be tossed to and fro by the wind? No, just the opposite. John had great conviction. He was the opposite of that. Verse 25, did you go out to see a well-dressed man? No, again, that was not who John the Baptist was at all. In fact, the very reason that he attracted so many crowds is because he preached and lived with great conviction. He rejected all of the comforts of the world. He had a strange diet. He wore strange clothes. He lived out in the desert preaching strange things that people had never heard before. And to do things which, with such conviction is what attracted people to him. They didn't know whether or not they believed John the Baptist. But as they con- contemplated him, they said... Whatever it is that he believes, he believes it. He believes it with great conviction. And that was very powerful for people. John knew that he was a prophet of God. And Jesus confirms this about him. In fact, he was greater than a prophet. He was a prophesied prophet. In other words, there were prophecies about him that he would come. Malachi chapter 3 says just that. He is the one who, who has come to prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus confirms once again, this is who John the Baptist was. The Elijah prophet, the Elijah figure who was to come. So Jesus then compliments John, doesn't he? And it's quite a compliment. Not a bad one anyways. Jesus says that John the Baptist is the greatest person who has ever been born of a woman. That's a pretty good compliment, right? The greatest person in the history of the world, the greatest person who has ever lived. In an age like this, we're sort of given to hyperbole. So uh, we might say something similar to someone, you're the greatest person ever for something simple like if they give you an ice cream sandwich or something, or maybe that's just me. We live in an age given to hyperbole, don't we? But Luke is not 
speaking ironically here. Jesus is not speaking ironically in regards to John. It's not sarcasm or anything like that. Jesus is really wanting to say that John was a great man and the greatest of the prophets, but he's speaking in regards to his prophetic office. He's speaking in regards to what God had appointed John the Baptist to do because he was the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets. The one who bridged the gap to the Messiah. This was the purpose which God appointed for him. And thus as you move through redemptive history and you see this latent expectation for the Messiah and getting closer and closer and closer to God's purposes being revealed in in redemptive history, you get this heightened feeling of how important the words of the prophets are. And John the Baptist is the last in line. He occupies this special place of being both an Old Testament prophet, but being able to know Jesus. But Jesus says something puzzling right after that, doesn't he? He says, but the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is greater than he. Now, Jesus is wanting to draw our attention to the new creation aspect of the kingdom of God. In the Gospels, that's really a simple definition of the kingdom of God. It is new creation. New creation leading unto eternal life. And Jesus is wanting to bring our attention to this uh, motif of divine reversal. This kingdom of God is where counterintuitive things make sense, right? It's a kingdom where the last are first and the first are last. It's a kingdom where the poor are made rich and and the rich are sent away empty-handed. It's a kingdom where the exalted will be humbled and the humbled will be exalted. Thus, Jesus is not saying that John the Baptist did not truly know God. He's not saying that at all. He's merely saying that as a prophet who occupies this place as last in line before the Messiah comes... He will not experience the coming of the kingdom in its post-resurrection power. The powers of the new covenant breaking into history. He gets just about to moving day, but not quite to experience the fullness of the kingdom of God coming in history. The kingdom of God is the blessings of the age to come. And so Jesus brings our attention to this idea, this duality of being born of a woman, which he says about John the Baptist. But the implication is that the kingdom of God is like unto being born of God, not just born of, of woman, but born of God, the new birth, new creation life. Again, highlighting for us the transcendent value of the kingdom of God. So there is quite a response from the people who are gathered around Jesus. Verse 29, we read, the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, proclaimed God just. And our translation says something like they acknowledged that God's ways were right. But it's really an acknowledgement of God's justice. They proclaimed God's God just because they had been baptized by John. Fascinating response, right? And in verse 30, we read, but the Pharisees... And the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves, for they had not been baptized by John. Why were they rejecting? 
Why did they reject? And specifically, what were they rejecting when they rejected God's purpose for themselves? The point is this, and we'll see it in Jesus' parable that he says in the next verses. But the point is that in John's ministry, the kingdom of God was presented as a kingdom where you need to have repentance of sins. John came preaching severity about sin and and, and that sin was universal, that you need to seek God while he may be found. And Jesus assures all of those around him that he and John are preaching the same kingdom, but they're preaching different characteristics of that same kingdom, right? Because as we saw last week, Jesus is bringing grace and mercy before the judgment, different than John's expectations. But because John was not expecting that the divine Son of God would come to bear the wrath of God in his person. Thus, we see the same people that resonate with John the Baptist's message of repentance and those who had accepted his baptism, they are the same ones who resonate with Jesus' message of mercy and grace. You see how a taste for repentance and a taste for grace are very similar, aren't they? Because if you have a taste for repentance, if you're willing to acknowledge that there is no righteousness that that you can present to God, that you need forgiveness, that you need the mercy of God to be extended to you, those will be the same people who are all open to hearing that the kingdom of God, new creation life, eternal life, is granted through free grace. It's granted by grace. So there is this, this, they work in concert with one another, don't they? A taste for repentance and a taste for grace. Indeed, the kingdom of God begins at repentance. It's a gospel and it is a kingdom that is not ordered around talent or beauty or worth in the eyes of the world. The Pharisees and the experts of the law so often are given to the wisdom of this world, right? To humble yourself, to acknowledge your own inadequacies, it seems to fly in the face of the wisdom of the world. But Jesus comes preaching a transcendent wisdom, a kingdom whose value transcends all other kingdoms. And that is what characterizes this prophecy of, or this proverb, sorry, of Jesus. This last proverb speaks of the danger of self-righteousness. The danger of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is really spiritual starvation. As this, uh, I thought it'd be appropriate as we gather around the table uh, today to have a lot of these illustrations be around eating and our appetite and our taste. Appetite for the gospel, taste for repentance and grace. Self-righteousness is spiritual starvation, but when someone is, uh, doesn't have a lot of access to food, eventually the body adjusts and the body doesn't even, doesn't even continue giving hunger signals anymore, right? The body adjusts, and so people who are spiritually starved, who do not know repentance and grace, do not even know that they need it. Those who trust in self-righteousness are spiritually starving. Jesus gives this proverb. He likens what he calls this generation, which again is going to be people who are blinded to the realities of the kingdom of God. 
who are, who are going to reject the gospel because they accept the wisdom of this world. That's why he can say this generation characterized by the wisdom of this world. He says this proverb, uh, this generation is like the children who call out to each other in the marketplace, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. What does he mean by this? He means that those who reject the gospel of the kingdom are like children who get in those moods when they just say no to everything. We've probably all seen this at one time or another, right? There are uh, young children because of their curiosity to test boundaries and, and, and if they can push the buttons of their parents or whoever's watching them, they'll just say no to everything, right? Do you want to play outside? No. Do you want to play inside? No. Do you want to go to sleep? No, of course. Do you want to stay up? No. Uh, do you want to play this game? No. Play that game? No. And Jesus says this generation... Insofar as they reject John the Baptist and the way that he preaches the kingdom, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and insofar as they reject Jesus, they are like these children who say no to everything. Always saying no, no matter how the kingdom of God is being preached in John the Baptist's message and in Jesus' message. A a child who hears a happy song and is not happy who hears a sad song and does not want to be sad. That is like uh, the people of this generation, the Pharisees and the experts in the law. They refuse everything that they are offered. Thus, when John the Baptist came, they said, oh, he's much too severe in regards to sin. When Jesus came, he came preaching grace and mercy, but they didn't like to whom he was extending grace and mercy, right? He was hanging out with tax collectors, sinners. The Pharisees and experts of the law said, well, that's not right either. So Jesus says, well, which is it? Do you hate the kingdom of God because of the way John the Baptist was preaching? Because of its approach to sin? Its seriousness towards sin? Or do you hate the kingdom of God because of its proclamation of grace and forgiveness? That it exalts the humble? That it makes the poor rich? That it makes... The foolish, wise. But this, friends, is the danger of self-righteousness. And this is the reminder for us as we come around the table this morning. Self-righteousness is is a poison that makes us reject the true spiritual nourishment of the gospel. It's a wonderful gospel, a joy-filled gospel. But if you do not have a taste for repentance or grace... And grace sounds good, right? But grace is really an acknowledgement that God is giving you the exact opposite of what you deserve. And that can be hard for many people to admit. People might say, well, well actually, I, I deserve to be treated fairly well by God. But a love for grace is an acknowledgement that salvation is the exact opposite of what you deserve. They had no appetite the gospel but do we do we have an appetite for the gospel our souls will be nourished and fed by something that comes from outside of us there is no spiritual photosynthesis in the christian life 
We need God's grace to come from outside of us and to feed and to nourish our souls if we are to have any health. We need Christ and the benefits of Christ given to us by the Holy Spirit. Thus, the Lord's Supper is a way to acknowledge our frailty. It's a way to acknowledge that we need to come again to the rivers of life. It's a way to acknowledge that we forget the grace of God and the mercies that he has shown us. It's a way to acknowledge that as we set out into this next week, we need the blessing of God to attend to us. We need the power of the Spirit to form and refine our hearts and our lives. It's an acknowledgement that we depend not on ourselves, but on the grace of the God of the gospel. Three in one, holy, righteous, forever ours in covenant, welcoming us because of the work of Jesus Christ in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. That is the wisdom of following Jesus. The wisdom of the world will always say, prop yourself up. Make yourself look as good as you can. God has made foolish the ways of this world. And he did so when Christ was resurrected. When Christ was raised from the dead, he brought to nothing the wisdom of this world. But now we cling to that truth through the eyes of faith. And thus the supper also points us forward to the great marriage feast of the Lamb. And we say that eternal life, the kingdom of God, is more valuable than this life. It doesn't mean this life means nothing. It doesn't mean that in this life we aren't to strive after holiness and good things and helping others. All of those things we're called to do. But the Christian life is an acknowledgement that what God has laid up for us in heaven, what we will experience at the marriage feast of the Lamb, is of greater value. That Christ is our treasure. That Christ is the one to whom we cling in all things. He is our hope. He is our, tr- he is our righteousness. He is our salvation. May we remember that. The wisdom of following him as we gather around the table. Let's pray. Father in heaven, tune our hearts then to sing your praise. Bless this time as we gather for the bread and the cup to remember Jesus Christ. Minister to us, nourish us even now. In Christ's name, amen. Let us go in 